Thank you for tuning into this special presentation of the novel The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek, read for you in its entirety on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. The Dead Kids Club is what I like to call an everyman thriller, ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. It follows a divorced couple after the death of their son and asks the question, what would you do if the killer of your child got away with it? How far would you go to get the justice you deserve? the revenge you need, and how will you know when you're done? The complete book will be serialized over the next several months, between my usual short story episodes. I caution you that unlike most of the content on this podcast, The Dead Kids Club is a gritty thriller depicting scenes of graphic violence and mild sexual content, so if you're sensitive to that type of material, you've been warned. Please visit bedtimestories.studio to subscribe to my mailing list so you don't miss any chapters of this unabridged audio presentation and news about my upcoming thriller, The Tenth Ride. And now, Part 7 of The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek. 8. I tell Rebecca about Mikey. She listens attentively, but seemingly unconcerned. He's just trying to shake the trees. He doesn't know anything. You handled it well. What if he decides to grab me and torture me, just for the hell of it? Half a million dollars is a big incentive to break a few eggs. He's bluffing. Maybe I should go to the police. I mean, that's what I would do if... If you weren't guilty of what Mikey thinks you are? Well, yeah. Okay. You might want to talk to that writer, too. Horn? He seems to know a lot about these mob guys. Maybe he can reassure you that Manzanetti is all bluster, she adds. Not a bad idea. What if he comes after you? I ask. If he tries to threaten me, I'll scratch his eyes out. She crosses into the kitchen and starts fixing herself a snack. It's hard to tell if she's serious or just masking her fear with her own bluster. I fish Horn's card out of my wallet and flip it over and over between my fingers. I decide I'll talk to him before I go to the police. I just hope the cops don't agree with Mikey that I could be the killer. Don't need a mob hitman and a detective on my ass while I'm trying to kill a suburban mom at her weekend lake house. 9. Friday night arrives and I still have not gotten a reply back from Horn. His outgoing message says that he was out of town, and judging from his Luddite tendencies, I suspect it was an answering machine I spoke to and not a cell phone voicemail service. I haven't seen Mikey either, so I convinced myself that Rebecca was right, and the guy was just trying to scare me. Rebecca and I drive up to the lake. I would prefer to go by myself, but I know how far I'm going to get suggesting that to Rebecca. When we get there, we pass by the Dempsey's house. There are lights on and a car in the driveway. I wish I hadn't destroyed the spy cams we used on Vitaly. They would come in handy now. We drive through town and find the canoe rental place I had looked up online and join a throng of tourists waiting to make the Saturday evening excursion to see the stars in the lake. Once everyone is seated in an aluminum canoe and equipped with wooden paddles, the guy gets our attention by gently wrapping the gunnel of his canoe with his paddle until everyone is silent. Three rolls. He begins, number one, stay with the group. There is a red light that flashes every five seconds on the back of my canoe. If you get separated, paddle toward shore and head toward the dock. There's a flashing red light there, too. Everyone turns around to look at the dock. And a few seconds later, we are rewarded with a brief flash of red attached to a piling. Rule two, he announces, then waits for everyone to focus back on him. Keep the noise to a minimum. Your paddle should not bang against the sides of your canoes. Keep the splashing down and no talking. Rule three. Once we're out in the lake, 
pull your paddles in and keep as still as you can. We'll hold on to each other's canoes like I showed you earlier. When the water is still, the effect is amazing, but if you're making waves, it ruins it for everyone. Okay, let's go. He leads the way, expertly spinning his canoe silently so that his red flashing stern is facing the group. Initially, there is a cacophony of banging and scraping as all of us canoeing neophytes noisily get underway. After the first couple hundred yards, everyone falls into a steady, smooth, and mostly silent rhythm. Rebecca and I stay at the back of the pack. She does most of the work. I can only manage to use my paddle as a rudder with one arm and a cast, and allow the distance between us and the group to grow until we are left alone in the dark. We head back toward the shore, away from the flashing red light on the dock, and toward a group of piers jutting out into the lake. One of them belongs to the Dempseys. I had studied the satellite maps from my virtual machine at work. The Dempsey's property was very distinctive, with a large white boathouse at the base of a long white pier and a floating raft belonging to a neighbor nearby. Of course, it is impossible to tell how old the photos were, but with any luck, we should be able to pick out their house from the water. Turns out, luck is on our side. The configuration of the piers is exactly what I expected it to be. We paddle up to the boathouse, and it's empty. We slip in, tie off, and sneak into the yard, keeping to the shadows. Our cover story is simple. We lost track of our canoe group, and they had told us to go ashore if we got lost and ask for help. Plausible, but we aren't expecting to get caught. We get close enough to peer into the large picture window that faces the lake. There are no blinds or curtains. Sharon and a man who I assume is her husband are snuggling on the sofa watching a hockey game on a big screen TV. Everything in the house appears to be top of the line. Mr. Dempsey must do very well for himself, though I'm sure he spent a good portion of his fortune on defense lawyers. That's not her husband, Rebecca says. How can you tell from the back of his head, I ask. They're snuggling. So? He hates her. Hates that he had to stand by her while she was paraded around as the most vile woman in the state. There's no way they're having sex, let alone snuggling. So, who is it? A lover, she suggests. We sneak around the house to the driveway. The make, model, and license plate match Sharon Dempsey's Mercedes. Rebecca taps me on the shoulder and points to a bicycle leaning against the railing leading to the back door. Local guy, I ask. Makes sense. Where are the kids? Probably back at home with the nanny. Wow, she's a real winner. Maybe she should run for Congress. We snicker quietly, then make our way back down to the boathouse. I stop to give the handle of the back door a turn. It is unlocked and opens easily. People in these communities sometimes are lax about security. Hopefully this is typical and not an exception. From the lakeside yard, we stop to get another view of what's going on in the house. Sharon sits on her lover's lap, blocking his view of the hockey game on the screen. She tries playfully to draw his attention away from the game and is not having much luck. She leans in to kiss him, and when she pulls back, he pushes her aside to see the replay of the goal that she made him miss. Offended, she storms off and up the stairs. He yells after her, pleading, but a fight breaks out on the hockey game, and he is seduced more easily by the action on the enormous flat screen than his pouting paramour. I'm not surprised. There's nothing really attractive about her except a pair of exceptionally large breasts, which at the moment for this guy is not enough. Let's go, I say. I lead Rebecca down to the boathouse, and we climb back aboard the canoe and silently make our way back out onto the lake, Rebecca again handling pretty much all the paddling. While we wait for our group to make its way back to the dock, 
the water is still enough to show us the incredible reflection of the night sky that this little lake is famous for. The night tour group is a bit noisier coming in than they were going out. We blend back in seamlessly and thank our guide for a spectacular evening. By the time we get back to the apartment, we are both exhausted, and I fall asleep nearly the second my head hits the pillow. 10. The phone rings. The call is very confusing. It's someone from the hospital. They tell us a boy has woken up from a coma, and he's not who they thought he was. Somehow, Nick was confused with another kid who was brought to the hospital at the same time. Our Nick has been on a coma, in the pediatric intensive care unit, and we buried someone else's child. I demand answers. How can this be? Who is responsible? The voice on the other end of the phone ignores my questions and tells me Nick is asking for his mom and dad. Rebecca is ecstatic. She wants to see him right away. Before I know it, we're at the hospital being guided to a room by a smiling nurse. Nick looks up at us from the hospital bed. His eyes light up when he sees us, but his limbs are so atrophied that he cannot even raise his arms to hug us. Rebecca is completely accepting of the staff's apologies. I am furious. Do they know what they put us through? What we've done because we thought our son was dead? Vitaly arrives. He heard that the little bugger, as he calls Nick, is awake and brings him a giant stuffed animal. No one else seems at all surprised that he's there. Next, Cooper enters with a plate of cheeseburgers. Sharon Dempsey is hanging on his arm, cooing, bragging to anyone that'll listen that this one prefers my tits over a hockey game. Nick calls out to me. I cross to the bed. I missed you, Daddy, he says. Don't go away. I'm not going anywhere, I tell him. But the policeman who came to our house after we killed Vitaly, we did kill him, didn't we? puts handcuffs on me and reads me my rights. Don't go away, Daddy. It's okay, Nick, Rebecca tells him. Daddy did some bad things and has to go to jail, but he'll be back when you're older. Did what? They're alive, both of them. I turn to the cop. It's not the cop anymore. It's Mikey Manzanetti. Eddie Horn takes notes in his leather notebook. This is great, he says. Just the twist I needed to sell my book. But I didn't do anything. I protest. It's okay, Rebecca reassures me. Nick's alive. I look back to the bed. Nick is older now, 12 or 13. Amy is on the other side of the bed. She and Rebecca each hold one of his hands. Come on, Mikey tells me. Time to break some eggs. He pulls out a black gun, as black as the leather jacket he's wearing, and brings it down as hard as he can across my face. I sit upright in my own bed, gasping for breath. There is no hospital room, no Vitaly or Cooper or Dempsey, no Nick. Rebecca lies next to me, undisturbed. The clock glows, telling me it's just before 4 a.m. I wait for my pulse to slow before lying back down. I try to close my eyes, but sleep doesn't come right away. And when it does, I don't dream. 11. The phone rings. It's Eddie Horn. Sorry to take so long to get back to you, he tells me. I was out of town, chasing down a story. You said in your message that you had some questions? Yes, thanks for calling back. Can we meet? I'd rather not talk over the phone. Oh, okay. Same place? Eleven? I'll be there. Thanks. No problem. I hang up. Rebecca is gone, likely meeting up with Amy to share the results of our reconnaissance. I check the clock. It's just after nine. I take a quick shower 
throw our clothes from the previous night into the laundry, then go out to the car to make sure we haven't left any traces except a few miles on the odometer. There's an email from work, alerts coming in from one of the servers, so I set up a remote connection and check it out. By the time I'm finished, it's time to head off to meet Horn. I get there before him this time, sit at the same table, and order a coffee. He walks in a few minutes later. I stand, we shake hands, make some small talk about my cast. He waves his coffee cup at the nearest waitress. So, he says as he slides into the booth, what can I do for you? He sits with his elbows on the table, hands clasped, a friendly grin on his face. I met a man who said his name was Mikey Manzanetti, I say. Horn's hands unclasp, and he reaches inside his jacket for his leather notepad and pen. Mikey Manzanetti? Are you sure? Big beefy guy, wears a lot of black, doesn't like it when people are patronizing. My abbreviated description is enough to convince him, and me, that it was indeed Ice Pick Mike that had been following me. What did he say? He told me that Vitaly's father has a bounty out on his son's killer, and he implied that I was on his list of possible suspects. How much is the bounty? Half a mil. Shit. Is that a lot for something like this? Yeah. Most hits are in the ten to 50,000 range. He said that there needs to be a confession along with it. That explains the amount. It's a lot easier to just whack someone than to extract a confession. And the old man is smart enough to tell if someone confesses because they've been tortured. Sounds like he's trying to scare you. It worked. The waitress comes and fills his coffee cup. I tell him the whole story. He's hoping if you're the killer you'll make some sort of move that will expose you he says at the end. I'm not the killer. Of course not, but Manzanetti is very methodical when he needs to be, and patient. You're a name on his list, and he won't strike you off until he's found the guy who murdered Vitaly's son. Have you gone to the police? Not yet. Did he say not to? I replay the conversation in my head. There were no admonitions of that type. No? Then you should. He scribbles something on a page from the back of his notebook. Talk to Detective Court. He's the one in this town most plugged into Vitaly's activities. He'll take you seriously. Do you think I need to worry about him coming after me or Rebecca? He shakes off my suggestion. These guys are smart. They wouldn't have been around for so long if they weren't careful. If you really thought that you killed Vitaly's son, he wouldn't have tried to scare you. You would be dead right now, pushed into a barrel with a few cinder blocks and dumped into the river. That's comforting. Listen. You just had the misfortune to cross paths with the Vitalis. They don't think the same way you and I do. If someone kills one of theirs, they want blood. They think exactly the way I do. But Vitali is a code he follows, makes an effort to minimize collateral damage. You're a civilian. Unless Mikey has solid proof that you killed Vitali's son, they're not going to touch you. And once Manzanetti catches another scent, he'll leave you alone. Go see Detective Court. That's probably the best way to convince Mikey you have nothing to do with the murder. A guilty person would maybe run or hide or try to destroy any evidence that could link him to the crime. I'll stop by the police station today, I assure him. Good. If I hear anything, I'll let you know. Thanks. He tucks his notebook back into his jacket and pulls out his wallet and fishes out some bills. I've got it. Thank you for seeing me, I tell him. Anytime, he says. Have a slice of pie. They've got apples today. He gets up and leaves, checking his watch as he goes. Obviously, I was an unexpected detour in his day, but the conversation was reassuring and helpful. 
The waitress passes by, and I ask her for a slice of apple pie. She jots down my order and moves on. I look at the name on the scrap of paper Horn gave to me. How good of a detective is Court? Will he take Mikey's interest in me as a lead he should be pursuing as well? Or will he dismiss the notion as quickly and completely as Horn did? I eat the pie slowly, wishing to put off the answer to that question as long as possible. 12. I stop at home first, hoping to see Rebecca and fill her in. She's not there. I call her cell phone. There's no answer. So I leave a message telling her that Horn suggested I go to the police about Mikey, and I'm going to do that. I wait almost an hour at the station before Detective Court will see me. He walks me back to an area not unlike the bullpens you see on every TV cop show. I sit in a solid wooden chair to the side of his desk, while he sits back in his modern office chair. I'm very sorry about your son, he begins. We were all frustrated as hell that the DA couldn't make the case against Vitaly. I know it's a small consolation that Tony is rotting in his grave, but I hope it gives you some comfort nonetheless. Thank you, it actually does. What can I do for you today? Eddie Horn suggested I talk to you. Really? How do you know him? He interviewed me for a book on the Vitalis. Wanted to include the story about Nick's death and Anthony's murder in a chapter or something. Eddie's quite a character. What does he think I can do for you? A man who called himself Mikey Manzanetti has been following me around lately. He came up to me at the grocery store and told me he's looking for the guy who killed Anthony Vitali, and he led me to believe that he thought it might have been me. Was it? he asks. No, I answer with a note of offense at the suggestion. He pauses, evaluating my response. After a few seconds, he puffs out his lower lip and nods like a human bobblehead. Then you have nothing to worry about. I breathe a sigh of relief. He asks a few more questions about dates, times, and locations. We know about the bounty, but if Vitaly or Manzanetti really thought you killed Tony, you'd be dead already. That's what Eddie said, I tell him. Chances are he's making a show of going after you to lull someone else into a false sense of security. My money's on someone inside the family. There'll probably be a body dump in an alley somewhere in the next month or two. Not the bottom of the river? Detective Court smiles. I'm not sure if he thinks it's funny or he's amused by my naivete about mom hits. They'll want to make this one public. So, nothing to worry about? I ask hopefully. Keep an eye out. If he accosts you again, give me a call. Court hands me his card. I will, thanks. Not at all. Can you find your way out? Yes, I think so. Take care. I get up and wind my way out through the maze of desks. Before I go, I turn around and see that Court is now speaking with the detective who paid Rebecca and me a visit not too long ago. My heart races and I get out of there as fast as I can without drawing any attention. When I get home, I collapse on the sofa in front of the TV. I'm in the mood for some sort of distraction. It feels like everything is closing in around me lately. But after talking to Horn and Court, I'm reassured that Mikey is not going to slip an ice pick into my heart and temple while I sleep and then snip off my pinky toe. 13. Rebecca finds me sleeping in front of the television when she returns home and wakes me. She asks me about my day, and I replay the conversations with Horn and Court as she takes off her coat and goes through the mail. She sits next to me, an air of excitement in her eyes. So, she begins, Amy and I had lunch with her sister-in-law. They live in the same town as the Dempsey's. I don't like where this is going. Turns out we were right about the other man. Their marriage is strained, to put it mildly, 
and she practically lives at the lake house on the weekends when her husband isn't working. She never takes the kids. Sounds perfect, right? I nod. Rebecca detects my concern. What's wrong? Amy's sister-in-law? I ask. Don't worry about that. We didn't just grill her about the Dempseys. In fact, she's the one who brought it up. She's a terrible gossip. The fewer people who connect this to the target, the better. Once she's dead, there are going to be a lot of questions. And if a nosy investigator detects a connection to the group, or us, or... They won't. And why not? Because we're going to make it look like the husband did it. Or the lover. There's already a motive hanging out there. All we need to do is make it look like a crime of passion. Rebecca whispers the word passion and moves closer to me. Oh, that's all? I ask, trying to detect her mood. Yes, she replies simply, now an arm's length away from me. I realize that she's right. It is a perfectly simple and brilliant plan, and puts minimal suspicion on a third party, let alone us. She arches her back slightly and bites her lower lip, the way she sometimes does when she's about to kiss me. Okay, I agree. Now she's next to me. I slip my good arm around her waist. Knife? She whispers into my ear, giving it a little nip. Sounds good, I answer. We can find something in the kitchen. She pulls back slightly, reaches around and takes my hand into hers. During the midnight lake of stars thing, no one will notice us coming or going. An inspiration strikes her. Sally mentioned that they have a pontoon boat. I'll suggest to her that it'd be a nice romantic thing for us to do, and she'll keep Roger from insisting on joining us. There's a playoff game that night. He'll be eager to have an excuse not to go. She squeezes my hand. I can see the excitement growing in her eyes, and part of me grows eager with the hope that all this talk of taking a human life will engender the same type of animal lust that the actual act had before. So, now all we have to do is wait, she adds, seductively. Hardest part of any plan. I move in to kiss her, but she deftly dodges my attempt with a playful smile and instead changes the subject. Want to go to the movies? She suggests. Sure, I say. I guess the notion that tonight will be an exhausting round of unbridled sex is off the table. 14. The two weeks before the trip to the lake pass uneventfully. I finish a major project at work. Everything goes smoothly. My boss brings up Sally's excitement at us joining them at their lake house, but I suspect he is looking forward to it just as much. We are actually becoming rather good friends, more than just co-workers. We share more and more lunches and even a dinner. Rebecca and Sally become fast friends as well. They go out to dinner and shopping a few times. There is a natural synergy between their careers, Rebecca as a real estate agent and Sally as an interior decorator. There are no more visits from Manzanetti or the police or anyone else threatening to kill or arrest us. At group, the sessions return to a normal rhythm. Barb reasserts herself as the leader, and we share our trials and feelings, and even welcome a new couple into the group. They're cancer parents, so they don't stir the revenge pot at all. Rebecca tells Nick's story when it's our turn. Will hearing it ever not make me cry? The dreams are getting stranger and more frequent. Ever since that nightmare, after we returned from our reconnaissance of the Dempsey house, They've been coming every few nights. This evening is no exception. I'm at work and a teenage boy shows up, telling me he's Nick, asking why I left him at the hospital. I don't question his assertion, just apologize to him, and promise that I'll make it up to him. 
The senior Vitaly appears and tells me he knows what I did, and before he kills me, he's going to kill Nick and Rebecca. My son and his mother plead with me to kill Tony Vitaly before he kills them. I have a gun, but the bullets seem to move in slow motion. Vitaly easily evades them. When I finally get close enough to have one of the bullets hit him, it does no damage, just bounces off of him. We fight, but my arms and legs feel like they're covered in molasses, and he pushes me to the ground, holding me down, with my arms pinned to my sides while I struggle to get free. Rebecca stabs him with a knife. Nick kicks him in the ribs, but he won't let go. I wake to find myself twisted in the sheets. Rebecca has rolled over next to me, tightening the bedding's grip. I'm swaddled like a baby. I don't wake her or even stir. Instead, I lie awake, unmoving, waiting for the first light of dawn or the alarm clock to stir Rebecca and free me. 15. We have three bags for our trip to Roger and Sally's, one for my clothing, one for Rebecca's, and one we call the kill bag. In it, we have more of the disposable surgical scrubs and gowns, including caps and booties, like those we used at Vitaly's, along with a supply of rubber gloves and a couple of the rubber sleeves I use over my cast when taking a shower. There are also two black rain suits to wear over the scrubs, since we could only get the former in a dull yellow cover, not much good for sneaking around in the dark of night. Layered on top of our supplies is a first aid kit, bottled water, and a mylar blanket, so if anyone were to get curious, they'd just assume it was an emergency road kit. There are no weapons included. The plan is to use something from the house. Neither is there any sort of electronic equipment or other tools. Amy has strict orders not to be anywhere close to the lake. I am firm on the condition that if we don't find a door unlocked, or if there's anything that is not how we expect it, we walk away. Rebecca seems on board with that, but I know she'll agree to anything to get closer to another kill. The plan is to wait for Sharon Dempsey to be alone. According to the amazingly detailed information from Amy's sister-in-law, we have an idea that the man Sharon is having an affair with is married himself and doesn't spend the night. He pedals his bicycle over when his wife falls asleep or during the days when she's out doing something. It seems everyone in the town knows the details of their affair except their spouses. We'll make our first attempt tonight, and if she's not there, or he is, we'll reassess the situation and determine if it's worthwhile to try again the following night. On the drive up, I don't drill her on the plan like we did with Cooper. Instead, we take the time to catch up on each other's lives, speculate about the new couple at the group, joke about Roger and Sally's sex life. Rebecca goes off on a riff about what we might hear at night, Roger directing Sally's efforts to arouse him in the same manner I describe him running a project meeting. I laugh so hard I nearly lose control at one point, forgetting that my left arm is bound in a cast. Then she casually adds, Oh, did I tell you? Amy's pregnant. What? Who's the father? Her husband. She had some eggs left over from the in vitro. When did she do this? A couple months ago. Right before. Well, good for her, I say. Yeah, she adds wistfully. It's nice to think she'll have someone to love. On the way, we stop at a farm stand and pick up some fresh produce. We arrive a bit earlier than we had intended, but Roger and Sally are there, eager and glad. Sally and Rebecca embrace and immediately disappear into the house, making plans. We won't see them for a while, Roger warns me. Of course not, there's stuff to unload. Looks like you could use a hand, he jokes, knocking on my cast. When do you get that thing off? About three weeks. I pop open the trunk from my key fob and start handing Roger bags. He takes the luggage, I grab the produce. 
Think you can manage some fishing with that arm? Sure. I only need one good arm to drink a beer. Roger laughs. We joke some more as we carry the luggage and groceries into the house. Roger gives me a tour of the place, starting with the room where Rebecca and I are staying. It is on the complete opposite side of the house as Roger and Sally's room, and even has its own kitchenette. French doors open out onto a porch with a panoramic view of the lake. The center of the house is the great room, a large open space with a fireplace on one end and an enormous big screen TV on the other, and a variety of eclectic seating in between. There is a picture window that again affords a spectacular view out onto the lake. Roger and Sally's room is ridiculously large and connected to a master bath that looks like something from one of those TV design shows. Obviously, Roger is doing rather well for himself. Management has its perks. And judging from the quality of the decor, Sally's success as a decorator is well-deserved. We meet the women in the kitchen. Rebecca and Sally are stuffing some Tupperware containers into a picnic basket. Are you boys ready? Sally asks. Indeed we are. Roger answers, giving his wife a peck on the cheek. Then let's go. Rebecca walks over to my side and takes my hand. Sally and Roger are taking us for a cruise on their pontoon boat. Sally directs Roger to pick up a large cooler by the door. She reaches for the picnic basket. Let me, I offer. When you have two working arms, you can be a gentleman. For now you are our guest. All you are required to do is relax, have fun, and laugh at Roger's jokes. Those last two may be mutually exclusive, but I'll do my best to keep them in line. Sally hefts the picnic basket off the counter and directs us to the back door. Rebecca and I exit out into the yard. There's a lush green lawn stretching down to a strip of sand at the water, much nicer than the weedy waterfront Sharon Dempsey has, and a dock stretching out into the lake with a nicely appointed pontoon boat moored at the end. Roger loads the cooler on board, then grabs a captain's hat from atop the pilot's chair and dons it. Permission to come aboard? I ask. Permission granted, he replies with a limp salute. It's a three-hour tour, but I can promise you if we get stranded on a desert island, I do know how to make a radio out of a coconut and a piece of string. Thank you, Professor, Sally chides. Rebecca and I board, followed by Sally, who hands the basket to Roger. He carries it to a dining area at the rear of the boat and urges us to take a seat. We'll be reaching a top cruising speed of seven knots, so please keep your hands and arms inside the boat. If you need to piss or heave, check the wind. Sally smacks him on the arm, and Roger unties the boat and takes his position in the pilot's chair. We do spend roughly three hours out on the water on the nearly silent electric-powered boat. Roger points out some interesting features of the lake and its shoreline, while Sally fills us in on who's got the most expensive houses and how gauche their decorating decisions are. We move out into the middle of the calm water, where Roger cuts the engine as Sally sets up our lunch. I ask Roger about the pontoon boat. He brags that it's the fastest craft on the lake. The rule is you can't generate a wake greater than three inches and must have an electric motor that operates under a certain noise level. It's nice to be out on the water without the roar of a gas motor and all those fumes getting in the way, Rebecca remarks. That was one of the selling points of this place for us, Sally says. You guys are free to take it out later, do the whole star thing, Roger suggests. There's a bunch of blankets in that compartment. This boat has been known to generate a wake greater than three inches with the engines off, if you know what I mean. Sally swats him on the arm. What was that for? You were there too. Another swat. We all laugh. We may take you up on that. I read that it really is a spectacular sight. It is, Sally confirms, sharing a confidential look with Rebecca. We finish the meal, 
and Roger takes us on a meandering, wakeless course back to the dock. Thank you for listening to the Dead Kids Club on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. If you are enjoying this free presentation, I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or Audible and sign up for my email list at bedtimestories.studio. Make sure you rate and review on the apps that allow it and share this podcast with anyone you know who enjoys audiobooks. You can also show your support by purchasing this or any of my other books in paperback or ebook editions on Amazon or the complete audiobooks on Audible. And lastly, if you're a fan of paranormal mysteries, I hope you'll also check out the award-winning Rainy Day Investigation book series, co-written with Arnold Rundick and Lloyd Auerbach, at rainyanddae.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. Thanks again, and all the very best.